0: Um, are, do we want to say something About the fucking shooting That happened in the subway today
1: uh, We can mention it In like the lead up for oh, sure uh, uh, we, The problem is we, None of us Nobody seems to know what happened yet So
2: Yeah I, I don't know what, what to say
0: Yeah well The only take I have so far is <coughs> uh, Increasing the police budget Did not stop this guy No That's
2: true.
1: Yeah.
0: And they're still, he's fucking at large. Like, the cops can't stop one person with all of the bloated uh, money and equipment they have. Makes you think. But when ladies are selling churros in the subway, that's when they really spring into action, I guess.
2: I mean, if they were there, say, like, this happened and there was five cops on the platform and they just start shooting... Uh, Instead of 10 people shot, there's 20 people shot. And this isn't speculation. This happened outside the Empire State Building a few years ago when one person, for whatever reason, decided to uh, shoot their boss outside the Empire State Building. It happens. Cops, you know, since there's so many cops around the Empire State Building, they open fire. Nine people are shot in addition to the initial one. Oh, geez. Right. Um, so I mean, more cops does not necessarily mean less bullets.
1: And and, and all this presumes that uh, they would even look up from their game of cr- uh, Candy Crush Saga for the <laughs> minute to actually do something as they stand around in Jets jerseys, yeah. you know.
0: Uy. All right. Well, that was uh, certainly right. a take that was good.
1: Was that a cold open?
2: <laughs> as much as a take as we're going to get at this breaking hour, I'm sure... The whatever clue the Riddler shooter has uh, come up with will be dropped off and we can d- dissect that. Oh boy. Um, but that we don't have the card. The Batman has not yet arrived on the scene to receive the card. Yet.
1: Riddle me this, Eric Adams. <laughs> what would another 3,500 police officers do in this situation? Yeah. That's why they're calling for 7,000 cops on the subway now, not 3,500. So where are you
2: been, Jamie?
0: Oh, man. So uh, I had a bit of a not-that-fun vacation. Uh, <laughs> I was in Mexico. It was pretty cool for the first week. And then I was like, cough, cough, I don't feel so good. And it turns out I had COVID. Um, oh. So
1: Montezuma's revenge. Well, no,
0: that's later. <laughs> that comes later. So um,
1: you were on that omicron shit. You were on that new variant. I, I uh, had variants. like
0: I'm not sure what variant I had because I had symptoms of a few different kinds. Like I had the fever, the flu-like symptoms, which sounds like Delta. I lost my sense of taste for a few days. That really sucked. Um, But also then it sort of dissipated into just like an annoying cold, which is what Omicron is. Uh, So
1: You were were maybe smoking on that shit that brought the Aztec Empire down or something.
0: Uh, Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Um, But then, okay, so I quarred for like a week in my Airbnb, canceled all the other places. I was supposed to go to Puerto Escondido. I was supposed to go to Oaxaca, uh, but I just had to stay in Mexico City. And then a week later, I was like, Oh, you know, I'm feeling a lot better. I've been quaring for a week. I think I'm going to take a little walk and get some food from a street vendor. And then the next day, dun, 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 I came down with a stomach infection, which Oof. was no fun at all. I felt like I was dying. Uh, I thought about going to the hospital, but I was too nauseous to fucking move. So I just uh, got on an app and saw a doctor that way and got my prescriptions delivered within 90 minutes cuz uh
1: were you in uh, Mexico City Yeah
0: luckily this happened in Mexico City and now Yeah I was going to say uh, in the middle of fucking nowhere <laughs> Yeah uh so I guess you know silver linings but um I I got better enough to come home I tested negative for covid uh, is my stomach completely back to normal no is my cough gone also no Uh, Do I have energy? LOL. Of course not. But um, something kind of funny actually happened. Uh,
1: (laughs) Something funny happened on the way to the stomach doctor. What's that?
0: So this is in reference to the COVID. So like the first time I went to get tested for COVID and, you know, I went with my boyfriend because we were traveling together uh, to see if he had it too. Miraculously, he did not get it, even though I was coughing COVID germs all over the place in our hotel room uh, for two days uh, before we got tested. But anyway, uh, first time we go, the doctor's like, all right, you have COVID. I'm going to make some recommendations so how you, how you can feel better. And I was like, great. Um, and, and we went both times to this uh, place called Farmacias del Oro, which is just like a chain, you know, it's the equivalent of like a CVS or whatever. Um, they have COVID testing there. Uh, a week later, we go back to get tested because he's got to travel. And I'm just curious if I still have it, because I'm supposed to travel in a few days, because I had to extend my trip a little bit, because I was like, "Mm, you're supposed to wait 10 days. I guess the CDC says five days, but for travel, it's still 10. Curious. Um, Anyway... So the second t- it's
1: all very arbitrary these days. Yeah.
0: so the second time we go to a different location of the same chain to get tested. Um, and it was like a little bit shady. Like we told the guy we needed it for travel. It was a little bit shady the way he did it because he like closed the door while our tests were developing. and then he shows us, he's like, you're both positive. Uh, but for six hundred pesos, I will give you a negative result.
1: (laughs) Oh, shit.
0: And like, my boyfriend doesn't speak Spanish at all. uh, But, so I was like translating for him and he's like, isn't that illegal? And I was like, shut the fuck (laughs) up, of course it is. Like
2: That's like 30 bucks, right?
0: Yeah, so I was like, done. (laughs) Like this is a, <laughs> this is a great deal uh you know, we want to keep our options open in case the guy didn't fake our positive tests, both of them, so you know, I paid him the money we got the we got the doctored results that. I still don't know if we would have been able to fly with them, but I feel like we could have. Like the, they barely glanced at my uh, my test results when I was at the airport on the way home because, like, they want you to be someone else's problem. Real talk. Um, but anyway, like, uh, like an hour later, we went to a different location, yet another location of the same pharmacy, and he tested negative. So,
1: <laughs> well, oof. they say entrepreneurship's dead, huh? <laughs> yeah. All it's fu- <laughs> every time you have like these certifications and stuff and COVID among other things has been an entire huge like certification regime that's uh, come into place with a lot of people making money off of it you get all sorts of these like weird scams like A little bird told me that instead of paying $100 in city and class for 30 hours, you could just pay a guy $300 and get an OSHA 30 card that gets you certified to work on a building site in New York City. Yeah. You know, this is like a, it's a very common, like, low-level type of corruption, and I'm not surprised that it was there.
0: I mean, there's a lot of that in Mexico,
1: unfortunately. Uh, A lot of that here. There were people selling fucking fake Vax cards out of the back of vans, you know? True.
2: Yeah, and I, I should probably edit this out, but... When I was getting my podcaster's license, <laughs> it turns out the test that they give you is just the same fifty questions every time. <laughs> so another podcaster, I won't, I won't blast him, but he gave me the answers to the test, and I just had to memorize them.
1: It damn. was Derek Farn, wasn't it? <laughs> he, he's great at that test; he aces it every time. Oh man! Well, damn you! You made it back to the United States. You did it. Yeah, you're I, back with us, podcasting. You
0: know. I'm not all the way healthy, but when is that ever true?
1: Well, I don't want to sound like a mother now, <laughs> but a friend of mine did get a stomach parasite in Mexico, and a couple of years later had to get five pounds of parasite removed.
0: Uh, so just geez. saying, you're gonna
1: you're gonna want to maybe get a checkup on that in a little while.
0: Yeah, well, I'm it's
1: like a good way to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great way to lose weight for him. I
0: mean, I th-
2: the parasite and the removal of it.
1: Right, yeah. Oh,
0: boy. I mean, They'll
1: do a free lyco- liposuction for you, too. Oh,
0: Now I'm going to be thinking about that.
1: <laughs> so. <laughs> Sorry. Great. You should know that, though. That's probably important information. Great. <laughs> also, uh, apparently, everybody that's listening to this podcast now has that information as well. Oh this is a bit of a um, public service announcement I'm
3: so from i so glad you
0: told me that so that I know now, and I have one more thing to think about when I'm trying <laughs> to fall asleep later. Great. But yeah, I'm happy to be home and alive and all that shit. And, you know, I don't blame Mexico. I love I love Mexico still. It's one of my favorite places to visit Mexico City specifically, but other parts of Mexico too. And, you know, it was nice because well, uh, silver linings on some level, because my friends, my friends in Mexico City who I, you know, mostly just like hang out and party with, um, Really went out of their way to help me out when I was super sick. So um, that's nice.
1: Well, how about this for a segue? I, too, was traveling last week and the week before. I went to the southwest of the United States. And as we were driving straight shot through the desert from the Grand Canyon up into the high mountains where a family member of mine may have bought a house recently In the distance, you see a big white cube. You can see it from 50, 60 miles away. And you get closer and closer down the highway, the sunbeaten highway with the tumbleweeds floating by, the winds high in your hair. And you get closer and closer and closer and realize it's a humongous fucking Amazon logistics facility that I saw being built in uh, Los Lunas, New Mexico. Uh, Huge giant operation. Big like brownfield site, tons of workers throwing concrete and piles and shit in the ground, and that is going to be essentially now that Amazon facility, the economic epicenter of that part of the Southwest. Amazon, of course, continues to expand, uh, expand its facilities, expand its hiring. But some workers just recently on Staten Island had a different idea of expansion. They said, "Well, if Amazon's expanding, perhaps we can expand." workers power
0: <laughs> hell yeah you guys,
1: you guys like that little setup there I, I i cued that right to you
0: yeah good good segue you sound a little um like blown out in the mic i don't know if it's just the power know. of this segment
1: it's the power of this it's the power of the union yeah I'll turn him, yeah i'll turn him down too
0: much power yeah, power in the union, the union okay, goes nice to 11 well.
1: all right are we gonna keep my setup yeah or? That was good? Okay.
2: Yeah, so this can be an installment of the Sean regular segment, Ask a Worker, or or is it Strike
1: Update? Uh, it's sporadic enough of a segment that I don't even know what we call it. You've made up Ask a Worker, though. I like that. It's, of course, a play on my Twitter handle, which is a play on <laughs> a really bad account that I stole the joke from.
0: <laughs> so you admit it.
1: Oh, I admit it 100%. As a woman, I apologize you anti-semitic piece of garbage (laughs) i stole your bit
0: wow some cold shit
2: don't talk that way about the future senator from virginia or wherever she's
1: los angeles of course (laughs) of course that was los angeles (laughs) well
0: she'll carpet bag wherever she needs to go
1: yeah uh yeah ask a worker ask me anything man ama i'm your i'm your resident oh great i got a lot yeah. of
2: questions for you oh
1: goodness gracious um, okay
0: because sean was in charge of this union drive and every union drive that happens
1: yeah I, I i i i call christian smalls up every morning and i give him his marching orders for the day i really as much as i uh you know i i like to uh to be a worker i also like to order workers around which is why i'm uh Great candidate to tell you about union activities,
2: and that's why you make the big bucks from the Democratic
1: Party. Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. So
2: the Amazon Workers United, this is not a union connected to one of the major unions like Teamsters
1: or or UCFW. Right. W, this yeah. is
0: well startup, uh, shall we say?
2: Now, is this a? How would you characterize this? Is it a private union? Is it an autonomous union?
0: And uh, I think. And what do those so, things mean?
2: Yes.
1: Uh, private or autonomous. I mean, yeah, those things are true. I mean, the way that I would describe it based on like literature, I guess you would say it's an independent union. So you're right. There's been drives by the, um, by the CFWDU, the commercial workers. There's been drives by the SEIU. There's been a lot of talk of the Teamsters trying to get in and organize, uh, the Amazon truck drivers and other workers within there. But, as we saw in Bessemer now, where uh, the CFWDU effort has twice now led to a failure to get uh, majority voting in favor of the union, uh, the established unions, uh, the ones that have giant uh, offices on K Street in Washington, D.C., the ones that really do have a very intertwined relationship with the Democratic Party and segments of media, certainly segments of the American ruling class. Um, They were not able to break through. Instead, what happened was an independent union effort that was driven not by, well, let's just say outside specialists from the unions flying in from D.C. in order to tell... You know, the people down there, how great it's going to be to have a union, how there's going to be a great service for them, about how, you know, it's not going to ruin their jobs. It's actually going to make their jobs better. Just got to pay some dues or whatever. It instead was literally a grassroots bottom-up effort on the part of uh, two workers in particular who spearheaded this organization. And if you read about it, um, about the events leading up to it, it was really that independent, militant, grassroots character um, of the drive that allowed them to gain the trust of the workers on the floor and ultimately uh, claim what's probably the greatest labor victory of a generation. So, so I would say it's good. an independent union. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's good, it's good. I mean, the winning the vote was historic, for sure, right? Because of all of, well, because of the size of Amazon, right? So Amazon has... million workers, I believe. Um, Second largest employer in the United States behind Walmart. Uh, Again, there's been tons of attempts, and this is the first one to really break through. Um, It's historic in that sense, but there's still so many headwinds because it's not enough to simply vote in order to authorize a union. Now they have to sit down across the table from one of the most anti-union companies uh, around, maybe in history, and try to bargain a contract. They've already faced as individuals and collectively a ton of harassment and uh, sort of legal exercises on the part of Amazon. But now the real fun begins because you have to try to force these people to, to bargain a good faith contract and actually get them to implement it. So while this victory is historic and it's powerful and it means something, I think, in light of the historical moment that we're in, uh it doesn't mean necessarily that a contract is coming down the pipe anytime soon it could take two three years you know before we see the evidence of that
0: and this is a company with a lot of turnover so the company is probably counting on the fact that people are going to get sick of working under horrible conditions and quit and then guess what you have to organize all these new people so that seems like a challenge
1: Yeah, I mean, once the vote is in, it's locked in, right? So people can leave. um, And as of right now, um, Amazon is still forced to deal with them unless there was a decertification drive or something like that. The turnover does make it tough. The conditions make it tough in order to keep up the kind of momentum necessary to push the company to actually collectively bargain, right? Mm. Um, But as of right now, Amazon is locked into having to sit down with a democratically elected uh, negotiating team, you know, elected by the workers there on Staten Island. Um, but again, the, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, while friendlier under Biden, uh, it, the, the, there's still a huge amount of constraints on the union uh, in terms of what yeah. they can do. And there's a lot of power and money on the side of Amazon to kind of gum up the works a bit in the meantime.
0: I was going to ask about the NLRB because I've sort of seen the take in various places that um, having to do it the official way through the NLRB is not going to work for this revitalized labor movement because it's so under resourced and it's so backed up and it can take fucking forever. Is there any truth to that?
1: Yeah, the American labor a relations regime is fucking atrocious and horrible and degenerated even from the degenerate place it started in the 1930s and into the 1940s. I mean, just the fact that uh, things like permanent replacement workers, starting in the 1980s, uh, became a, a real thing uh, when strikes came up, uh, and the fact that uh, you can have, unlike you know when the when labor law first began, captive meetings where managers and bosses tell you how horrible a union is or whatever. These are all, this is all backsliding. Our, the, the labor regime in the United States was set up for different um, conditions, uh, economic conditions, uh, conditions of uh, mass industry, uh, conditions where, importantly, from the 1940s into the 1970s, capital uh, had enough largesse to be forced to spread it around a little bit. Um, at this point in time, there's no truce between capital and labor, and um, the, to the extent that labor unions have any power left under this regime, it's uh, purely political power in the most vulgar way, meaning uh, the use of courts and the use of glad-handing and donating uh, money and time to politicians that keep the unions alive. So a grassroots militant union drive is forced to work within that structure um this this action at amazon i'm not sure it in and of itself points beyond that structure at this point in time that's something we would hope we would hope that um a sort of militant movement could come together that could basically smash up that old shitty system and uh, force a new one upon the state and capital but we're not there yet uh working within these constraints means that there's only so much that workers could even do in terms of direct action um in terms of, um, you know, forcing changes over the actual production process itself. So, you know, there's still a lot of headwinds, like I said.
0: Here's a question that I see someone wrote down that I'm going to ask. Um, why didn't the Democrats show up? There's been a little bit of brouhaha over AOC, of course, uh, when they asked, some, some news guy I was interviewing, Chris Smalls, asked if he was going to thank AOC and he said, hell no, uh, (laughs) this, this isn't, I'm not, it's not her moment, something like that. Um, and like, you know, people wanted to, obviously anytime AOC does or doesn't do anything, it becomes all about Mm -hmm. her and whatever she represents to whatever fucking commentator is commenting on it. Um, But apparently she had some kind of scheduling conflict, which is why she didn't show up to one particular rally for them. But um, I think Chris Smalls, if you look at his whole answer, uh, did a good job redirecting the attention to the workers who accomplished this because, you know, whatever any politician did or didn't do. Uh, isn't really that important compared to what the organizers did, what the workers right. did, right? Like, they also, like, after that, they tried to ask him some, like, trolly silly questions about Jeff Bezos. Like, do you think he's going to stay in space forever now? <laughs> right, right, and, he, right. and he said, um, no, pr- I, I don't think so. Uh, but he said, I ain't giving this moment to him either. This is about the workers. Jeff Bezos, politicians, everybody else, forget about it. I know who was here from day one. I know who supported us from day one, and I know what we're capable of doing.
1: I mean the the fact that that the press has uh, gravitated around AOC um, in in this in this whole thing is just it shows how bankrupt and stupid our press is, and how limited the imaginations are of people uh, in terms of what's possible and what's fucking important, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I'm not sure um, AOC really um, has much to do with it all. Democrats, uh, I guess the larger question about Democrats, um, I I don't know what's in the brains of the Democrats. I don't know what they talk about in their little clubs or whatever around New York City or Washington or whatever. But I get the sense that because this wasn't um, an organizing effort that was previously captured uh, by one of the unions that has a relationship with the Democratic Party, And because it didn't fit in with the narrative of what politicians are supposed to do for constituents, you know, this this wasn't a a situation where a politician like AOC or Crowley or anybody could come down and gift these workers a union Mm -hmm. through good legislation or good policy or a $15 an hour minimum wage package or whatever it is, because it was the workers themselves doing it. That is a confusing story for the press. And it's also... A tough thing for the Democrats, too, or or the Republicans or anybody, because, you know, workers are not supposed to act outside of the bounds of those things. It's a very instrumental relationship that, say, the Democrats have uh, with the unions, right? Like I said, they want their money and they want the canvassers and shit like that. Um, They want them in their court. Uh, With this, you have an example of people not needing Democrats (laughs) Democrats <laughs> not needing AOC, not needing the fucking the, the SEIU, right? And that story right there is obviously what's important for us, but for the people who are in power, you know, that's that's actually kind of scary, I would say.
0: Well, according to the New York Post, this is just further evidence that AOC and the DSA and you know socialism writ large does not go together with uh labor labor unions
1: i mean that so, we should put the link to that uh that new york post story in the article it's, it's uh, or in the show notes it's really it's, funny it's
0: a very hot take or
1: it's a very hot take i
0: don't even want to dignify it by calling it a hot take it's just like a dumb take i guess that's a lot of hot takes um but they point out how the how organized labor endorsed her opponent joe Crowley. Um, They don't differentiate. They just say organized labor like they don't differentiate between the unions that endorse Joe Crowley and this particular union that seems to be um, a bit different from the old labor bureaucracy that's so in bed with the Democratic Party um, that they'll endorse people like Joe Crowley. Um, But here's here's like the nut of their argument. They said. AOC wants people to look for the, to the government for all their benefits, whereas smalls and fellow organizers want to extract even better benefits from their employers. Unionized workers with excellent health care have never been advocates of Medicare for all because they don't need it. Um, by the way, that's not true. Uh, that's absolutely <laughs>
1: untrue. Yeah.
0: Plenty of labor leaders have recognized that if we had Medicare for all, um, they could bargain for other stuff. Besides healthcare, care at the bargaining table, table like, uh, you know, better wages, better conditions, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. And, and
1: not even just the labor leadership, because that's kind of a, a red herring here. I mean, it is certainly true that many labor leaderships mine, for example... Don't want Medicare for all because it does actually take away not not having health care to bargain over does take away an important prerogative of the union and make, you know, that particular aspect of what they do less essential, you know, Mm -hmm. to workers. That's certainly true. But again, like. Whenever you read shit like this, there always has to be a distinction made between the leadership of these unions, which again are bureaucracies, which are in bed with various different power structures, and the workers themselves. And if you look, of course, at all the polling over all the years, unionized and non-unionized workers alike want something like Medicare for all. They want something that's going to take the onus of health uh, paying for health care off of their own backs so whether or not the leadership is on board it really isn't the point right this is about the the politics of it and and what workers want not necessarily the leadership or the aocs of the world
0: true true do you want to hear the rest of it there's only a little bit
1: i mean it's it's interesting sure go ahead
0: okay AOC and fellow Democratic Socialists claim to support unions, but much of their labor agenda consists of universal benefits that would make labor unions obsolete. I don't think that's part of the labor agenda, but I digress. Uh, The most obvious one from the DSA's platform to, quote, guarantee a job with union wages and benefits to everyone who wants one by creating millions of public sector jobs. With unions, union wages and benefits, there is no need for a union. Ironically, and something AOC is well smart enough to understand, a newly powerful service sector workforce actually harms support for the DSA movement. Unionized Amazon jobs are going to be really good logistics jobs, not so much Starbucks jobs as the economics just don't work. You can't <laughs> sell people $15 cups of coffee. <laughs> and people with good jobs are not street protesters or socialist voters.
1: I mean, certainly saw the largest strike wave of the late 20th century when you know unionization was the highest, right? So this is just absolutely not true. And also to the extent that, what we had from the 1930s to the 1970s was some warmed-over type of social democracy. I mean, that was also a time when people voted for all sorts of these things. But, but that aside, right? I mean, this is a very Gompers, Samuel Gompers type view of what a union is, which is why this person is writing for the, for the New York Post, right? Yeah. Unions are supposed to be a service. They're supposed to be in partnership with business. They're supposed to, sure, extract some gains or whatever. But they're not supposed to be political entities, you know the old, to the, the that's like the that's like the the right unionist argument and has been for 120 years or so what joe biden would say and let's an aoc as well is that unions should be political to the extent that they advocate for very small bore little policy issues like developer rezoning laws in new york state or whatever or like they advocate around minimum wage packages or something like that but they should not be political uh, like unions or labor writ large or the working class putting forward a political program on behalf of the class itself, mm-hmm. right? That is the danger right there. And that's something that both the Gompersites at the New York Post and Joe Biden would agree with, right? Is that a unions have a, and workers themselves have very, very um, simple and small roles to play in the conversation and in policy. And that's simply to like be another pressure group, another lobbying group to uh, to vote and give money to the right candidates when it comes along. So it, it, this is a very interesting article in that respect, but I'm not sure how illuminating it is about the actual issues, you know, political issues that are faced right here. The political issues that the New York Post wants to put a spin on it or the New York Times, I don't think are the political issues that should be important to us. I think what should be important to us is the fact that people have been calling for since 2016 Uh, in a mass way for a revitalized socialist movement. And there's been a missing ingredient. And that, of course, has been an independent, militant, working class movement in order to directly confront capital. Granted that, you know, Amazon, Labor United is not trying to overthrow capitalism, but it is the seeds and the nucleus of the kind of workers' power necessary in order to do any of the sort of reforms that people have been talking about for the last decade or so. So that's the important political aspect of this, I think.
0: Yeah, it's always fun when the New York Post tries to make everything it sees into like a right wing populist thing. And I guess that is there. That's certainly an aspect of uh, organized labor. Well, right wing sure populism,
1: right wing populism, and unionism go hand in hand. Well, in many cases, have gone hand in hand in the United States, going back to Samuel Gombers, Maybe me and Matt Crispin need to sit down and do history as a weapon fourteen. Unlike Samuel Gompers versus Eugene Debs. That'd be pretty good.
2: Here's a question for uh, our worker historian. Ask a worker historian. (laughs) Is the CPUSA back? Because uh, a part of this campaign is um, members of the CPUSA's youth group, the YCL, salted and were uh, phone banking for the union drive. And I, I saw some takes early on that the reason why this union succeeded is that there wasn't like a ton of cringy lefty media and rose emojis supporting mm-hmm. it. And so mm-hmm. uh, the workers were insulated from um, you know uh, PMC leftism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it appears indeed that some very young uh, CP members were wow. heavily involved mm-hmm. in this. Uh, so good for them. This is the first... Uh, win for the CPUSA since what nineteen forty seven? So like yeah, that. what do you make of that? The the communists are back. The big C communists.
1: Wow, okay. Well um it's time to do what uh some people online are saying and take over the CPUSA. That's been a big push on at least on Twitter recently is talking about taking back the CPUSA. You know what I say? <laughs> Fuck it dude. Fuck it! Take back the Communist Party, man. Bring back Browderism. Bring it all back. If that means that the CPUSA youth members are in fucking giant logistics warehouses helping workers to organize themselves, I say more power to it. We got to throw everything at the fucking wall, man. You know, if 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 the CPUSA comes back and ends up leading us to the glorious Browderite. Uh, revolution, I will hang a fucking flag in my room that says, communism is 21st century Americanism. I will do it, man. Change the motto of this podcast to that. So yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm happy that they did something for the yeah. first time in about 60, 70 years. I'm happy.
2: That's, that's the thing, you know, like if you bring up uh, X sect to me, you know, uh, PSL, CPUSA, whoever, um, I could like rant about why I don't like their politics or what historically I don't like about them. But Mm -hmm. my main gripe will always be, where's their W's? What have they done? What, like, what the, uh, uh, hic Hicksalta, right? Right, right. Mm -hmm. And here's an example of them doing it. So that's, nothing succeeds like success. Yeah. Good job, guys.
1: Exactly right. I mean, if if you read, um, what's it? WSWS.org. They had fucking trots. They had people, you know, different line they got a different line from the CPUSA they got a different line for PSL or whatever they were in the factories uh in in the big GM struggles that were happening last year they were in there they were reporting from the ground they had people at John Deere factory they had members who were workers in that factory they were forming their own committees and shit like that if you do that if you're if you're WSWS whatever what are they the workers solidarity party or something like that S-E-P, it stands yeah. for S-E-P. Ws
0: and more Ws.
1: <laughs> Ws and more Ws. Yeah, the, the SEP or the, w, the Dubs Party or whatever they call themselves or the CPUSA. If you guys are going to rack up wins like that, if you're going to be on the ground, I'm not going to hate on it then. And I don't really particularly care about what line you take on whatever.
0: I know, mean, respect. within reason. Within reason. <laughs> let's, uh, let's not go too far because, you know, they've had some wild takes.
1: Um, Polanski, and Michael Jackson, specifically. <laughs>
0: yeah, that, that, that is what I was referring to for those following uh, along at home.
1: <laughs> I'd love to see these old moribund Trotskyist and fucking Browderai parties. Be so powerful on the shop floor that they're like beating each other with pipes in order to like be the ones to take over the workers' council. (laughs) I'm fucking here for it, man. It's not them that's been holding stuff back, not for not at least since the 1970s or 60s or 50s or 40s or 30s or whatever.
2: Well, just imagine the day we can all go to JFK Airport and uh, the plane comes in and we're all on the tarmac and. Roman Polanski
1: emerges <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to the massive acclaim of the Spartacus. Hundreds people <laughs> cheering!
0: Yay! This is the future that s- very specific communists want. <laughs>
1: it's going to be the to the Finland Station moment for a very specific <laughs> sect of trots.
0: <laughs> oh boy!
1: Wow, we're getting back into the uh, the joy of sect stuff. Mm. This mm-hmm. is old school antifada, baby. <laughs> Oh, so uh, I see here, and maybe Jamie wants to jump in here. I see that the uh, Ask a Worker portion of this podcast is now over. Looks like uh, we have another segment called Ask an Andy. Or it could be Ask a Mapache. It could be Mm -hmm. Pregunta uh, el Mapache.
2: And we just so happen to have an Andy here. It's me.
1: Uh, We got a Mapache already. So ask me anything about what it's like to be an Andy. Yeah, what's the best place to dumpster dumpster dive in the in this Dude, in this the area? High code.
2: Mango down the street just closed. I was oh last, no, I was their last customer. Damn. And yeah, I, I went in there and everything was half off, and I bought seventy dollars worth of food for thirty five dollars. Hell yeah! And I was like, uh, "Sorry to hear you're closing. I hope everything is good for you. Whenever whatever comes next." And he's like, "Yeah, oh, thank you." And I leave the store, and he follows me out and rolls down the roll gate. <laughs> and of course, when I see that, I know what I'm doing later that night. Oh <laughs> coming yeah, coming back and getting that
1: food. You saw what was left on those shelves when uh-huh. you walked out of that. That's right. Damn man.
2: No, but we we should talk about uh, the the global wave of of struggles. That's what I like to talk about. Besides eating trash, and of course, I've made the prediction before. I feel like I'm. It's not a hard prediction to make, but the war in Ukraine is going to exacerbate inflation and price shocks around the world, and we're already seeing the first struggles and near revolutions as a result of that, specifically in Sri Lanka. So
0: Tell us more. Did, yeah, okay, this thank story you. I, I realized was not on my radar.
2: You you didn't ask me about Sri Lanka, but yeah, Andy, so
1: Andy's really asking himself.
2: I don't know a ton about Sri Lanka, but it appears that there are mass protests there demanding the resignation of the government of
1: Rajapaksa. I think I'm saying that right. Gota has to go, as they say.
2: Fuck Gota. I hate Gota. I've always hated Gota.
1: Yeah, imshi imshi Gotha.
2: Gota.cx. Check it out. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and, And so this is a guy who, I guess, came into power because he was seen as being a strong man for suppressing really just eliminating the Tamil Tigers. which was a really horrible story about how they put down that guerrilla movement, like basically killing all of them. Based on that, he was elected. Um, oh, based on that, and uh, there's a, an ISIS attack, I guess. Yeah. In 2019. But um, the Sri Lankan economy has been in deep crisis, I guess as a result of foreign debt. Um, that's That's the economic context. And then on top of that... Gas and food prices are skyrocketing, and so people have been in the streets for weeks there. They're trying to occupy the president's home. They're basically trying to, like, find this guy's family and run them out of the
1: country. Because this guy got elected, and then he appointed his brother as, like, the secretary of state, and then his cousin as, like, the minister of finance and his cousin's cousin as like the defense minister and his aunt as like the the premier or something like that it's basically like a um a ruling class organized crime family that's been elected there and uh people are blaming them for probably for decent reasons
2: right and it looks like they're gonna default on their foreign debt which i think a a number of countries are going to do at the same time it looks like belarus and russia are going to do it Pretty soon if they haven 't already so i don't i don 't know what that looks like. those kinds of defaults from you know major economies all at once like what do you think would happen
1: well i mean there's the sri lanka thing is is part and parcel I think of the the way that the the global economy has gotten really fucked up since COVID, because part of the way that Sri Lanka, I read, uh, was able to keep its economy afloat was because of tourism, and specifically tourism uh, with lots of dollars coming in, right? So they were able to artificially keep their um, currency, the rupee up uh, by having a bunch of dollars. All of a sudden, the tourists aren't there anymore. uh, And all of a sudden... You know, Sri Lanka is like a lot of other countries, which is that for the past, God, 14 years now, since the great economic crisis, it's been taking more and more debt upon itself. You know, the debt levels have gotten higher, which again isn't Sri Lanka, just Sri Lanka. There's pretty much every capitalist state in the world um, has been doing this. And it is now time to pay the piper. And the Sri Lankan um, state is trying to avoid an IMF bailout. And they're doing all sorts of weird things like they made a deal with, um, with India, with Modi's India, to swap uh, a half billion dollars worth of debt for tea. So they directly sent them some tea to write off a whole bunch of their debt. So Sri Lanka is trying to play this game now where they're trying to stay out of an IMF structural adjustment. Which would forcibly it would basically bankrupt them and force them to cut even deeper into the social su- social services of the state, cause even more social unrest. But the way they're doing that is trying to make little spot deals with people uh, in the area that they trade with. So you T know, is
2: still influencing geopolitics.
1: T is still after all these <laughs> centuries. T is still doing it. Um, Wild times, man. Uh, and again, not just Sri Lanka, but all over the place. What does a cascading debt crisis look like? I mean, last time we saw that in a big way was really the 1990s when the so-called Asian tigers went belly up, a bunch of hot money and capital flew into there, a bunch of borrowing, uh, and all of a sudden markets crashed and um, left with billions and billions and billions of of debt, which actually ends up flying around the world and hitting Russia as well, which went into a crisis in 1998, went into bankruptcy, leading to Putin coming to power in order to stabilize the economy. So the question, I guess, is what does the the rules-based international order do? What does the Washington Consensus do? What does the IMF, what does the United States do? Uh, the World Bank do, and all of a sudden you have like rolling systemic crises. Can it bail all of them out? Not sure it can. Do they want to be bailed out under the terms that uh, the IMF will give them? It's unclear. What is clear is that the um, the war in Ukraine has exacerbated economic chaos that's been around for 14 years and specifically for two years since COVID, uh, where we're starting to see the effects really ripple to the point that there's like Literal shortages right now in the Middle East of the wheat that was coming out of the fields of Ukraine that's now being rolled over by tanks, you know, as the Black Sea wheat trade goes away. So, wild times coming down.
0: So, okay, a lot of these global uprisings are responses to austerity, of course, um, and mismanagement on the part of the managers of their national economies, certainly in the case of Sri Lanka. Um, But like how much of this is overdetermined by what the global economy is doing? Because I, okay, don't know the most about this, but I see people are also protesting in Peru uh, not that long after electing Pedro Castillo president who is, you know, touted as a a leftist, as a labor leader. Uh, And yet uh, when push comes to shove, he doesn't have that much room to move around, although he's trying. Like, how much of this is the result of you know the specific management style, shall we say, of various leaders, and how much is uh, just what's going on, just what's happening?
1: No, I mean that's that's a great question because I think a lot of a lot of how determined it is, how overdetermined it is for like any particular working class population uh, on the globe is based on whether they're in the core of uh, the global capitalist system or in the periphery, right? So you mentioned Peru, Sri Lanka, Andy's got an article here about Lebanon and Egypt. There's all sorts of uh, these similar crises happening. You see that in places that are quote unquote developing, right, places where capital, global capital goes to either extract resources or to find really, really cheap labor to run mills and textile factories or whatever. Those are the places where No matter, it seems, what your politics are, if you're like a former unionist turned like a neo-social Democrat in Peru, whether you're like a corrupt oligarchic uh, crime family uh, running things in in Sri Lanka, uh, whether you're like uh, Modi, you know, in India, a big, powerful country that's getting squeezed by this, too. Uh, The ability, it seems, for various members of the ruling class to move around and and maneuver and navigate this is very, very constrained. Of course, if you're the United States or you're you're Europe, if you are the one that prints the dollars, if you're the one that the reserve currency is in, uh, global reserve currency is in, you have a lot more room to maneuver. If you've got a yen, if you've got a euro that you use, uh, you're able to export a lot of this crisis to the periphery which is kind of one of the ways that, in the core, global capital, capitalism has remained so stable economically and politically is because you let the devil take the hindmost, right? You you build stability in the core while letting uh, people starve and um, be uh, hyper-exploited in the periphery because that's just how the system works. So the question, I guess, the big question is, um, this inflation, these shortages, these debt crises – Are they going to bounce back into the core? And I think there are indications that it is. This isn't going to be like uh, 2008 uh, or this isn't going to be like the 1990s where things stay in the periphery. It looks like this is coming directly to the core. In fact, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, despite trying to raise the pension age as a campaign promise against, you know, uh, Marine Le Pen in this election, is also talking about giving out uh, food vouchers. Uh, to, to poor working people uh, in France because, Lord, is this uh, crisis really starting to squeeze people in the very, very center, uh, workers in the very, very center of the capitalist core.
0: Uh, oh, boy. <laughs>
2: yeah, but I don't think it goes to the core first because, like, if we look at Sri Lanka and, and Peru might be a better example, so there's this uprising about gas and food prices in Peru. Peru's a country that's particularly exposed to price shocks because unlike argentina or venezuela they import most of their oil they import a lot of grain too i think so in march um every country had a pr- pretty high uh, rate of inflation uh but it was particularly bad in peru i think it's like I've, I've read something like 10 percent um and so of course this hits immediately uh the the uh you know uh Urban workers and rural farmers. And this is the basis of the support of this new leftist president. And uh, something pretty similar happened in Ecuador uh, a few years ago, um, where there's this uprising over fuel prices. Uh, Basically, a lot of the uprisings we've seen, beginning with the Arab Spring, are either bread riots or about fuel prices, because this is what directly impacts people immediately. And so, in these situations, often the way these mobilizations, these uprisings, gets translated is anti corruption. Right. Blaming, blaming these price spikes on the corruption of the political class, especially the executive. And the danger of that, of course, is the opposition just says, like, well, we're going to be anti corruption. Mm-hmm. And then, no matter who they are or what they do, you know, they're at the, wil- the whim of the global market. And the core, of course, you know, countries like France have a bigger economy to uh, to try to um, uh, mediate that in some in some degree. So a country like Peru can, or Sri Lanka can collapse very quickly, quickly, or Egypt, which might be coming next, they are trying to do some uh, programs to stave off uh, the this massive spike in bread prices because they're the biggest importer of bread, and bread prices are going to grain prices are going to go way way up. So they're trying to subsidize it to some extent
1: which of course puts more pressure on the state and its debts yeah. right so this is the sort of cycle that we see I'm glad you brought up the Arab Spring because that's sort of what's what was missing in the stuff that I said before and reading the article the Al Jazeera article you sent about Sri Lanka it was very very redolent of the kind of the protesters I should say the kind of rhetoric and uh, the kind of movement that you saw. Uh, in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Syria as well, um, at the height of the Arab Spring, as you said, this this anti-corruption. Um, there's a direct quote: somebody saying they don't they want no more corrupted politics in Sri Lanka. It's like uh, 12 years later, 13 years later, after all the failures of what the Arab Spring was, this sort of populist uprising. With like a sort of like yuppie PMC data nerd sort of like vanguard component to it that gets swept away completely by you know military by the power of the of the military or by by the Muslim Brotherhood or state actors like this, um, you know we're still seeing the same sort of rhetoric. The people are still demanding the fall of the regime, which was the great cry in Egypt, right? The people demand the fall of the regime. It seems as though. Uh, po- the politics of this is stuck there at this point in time. And maybe that's because in the article you sent, it appeared as though the Al Jazeera person, uh, reporter, was only really talking to middle-class people. Uh, everyone they interviewed was like a writer or an ad- advertiser worker or like a teacher or whatever. Those might have just been the people in the article who spoke English or that they could communicate with. I guess the question that we need to think about is, A, what is the class composition of these uh protests right um and also how can we imagine or do we see a way in which they can break out of the frankly failed politics of of 2011 that simply brought like a reshuffling of the deck of the ruling class in that region and civil war of course Well,
2: well the composition of the arab spring as well and the recent uprisings tend to begin with professionals in the middle class and students and that kind of thing that's that's the nature of how these protests uh, begin to articulate themselves. Yeah, as the Marxists, we see that as a as a challenge. Of course, like it's got a the the working class has to eventually take the lead position, and and often they do. I think this. I think Sudan, although there's not like a ton known or understood about what happened in Sudan, that those protests absolutely began with like the uh, urban uh, middle class and professionals, um, and then spread to uh, the working class and be, and became far more proletarian in character. So that is not, uh, you know, how we might want it to happen, but that is often how it happens.
1: Well, look, we don't we don't say to the world, like, this is how you should struggle. These are the true slogans, you know, right? We have to look at how the world itself is struggling. And as Mark said, coming to its consciousness of what it's doing. Um, I, I've got no problem with, you know, with that, dynamic, of course. I can't do anything about it. I have no problem with it. I guess the question that we should ask ourselves is, do we imagine a way in which not only these struggles can become proletarianized, and maybe enough immiseration does that, right? but also the way in which it breaks through the glass floor, right? Uh, starts to affect production? Because we know that in the Arab Spring, when, or in Egypt, when Hosni Mubarak was finally actually um, taken from power, It was uh, the general strikes, you know, in the oil refining and in the industrial regions in Egypt. That really tipped the scale. But then what replaced that, right? What replaced that was um, ultimately the only effective force in Egyptian society that was actually out there on the street that that could offer an alternative vision to the sort of neoliberal, U.S.-backed military regime of Hosni Mubarak, and that was the Muslim Brotherhood. But then again, of course, because there was there remained in Egypt uh the implicit power and that became explicit of uh the military, you know, of, of, of that institution. Um as soon as you know the Muslim Brotherhood was democratically elected into office, another military dictator of course was put into place. So the question is like how how can we imagine this way this this time it being different? Is there a greater and more widespread amiseration? Uh, did 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 the working class learn any lessons from 12 years ago? Is there something like the nucleus of a communist impulse in this? Uh, Are there forces on the ground who are going to be arguing for, as they should be, uh, direct attacks on the state and on private property? I think this is, I mean, of course, we don't know, right? There's a lot we don't know about these struggles. And of course, this crisis is very, very early. But these are the sort of things we should be looking for. Because the only way that you're going to get history to move again and change to happen and to put this godforsaken shitty system to bed is, of course, by people asking, posing these questions and actually doing something about it.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. I don't know nearly as much about all of these struggles as I would like to. But the slogan that sticks most in my mind is one out of Lebanon um, when they would chant all of them means all of them at these anti-government protests because for the most part, these political revolutions have simply resulted in a changing of the guard, um, different people managing the same system, and eventually they have to protest again because all of these problems are overdetermined. So how do we go from sort of a political revolution saying we just need better managers in charge to more of a social revolution that is not only proletarian in nature, like you were saying, um, but reaches into production and, you know, wants to change the basic relationships that run society um, rather than putting someone new at the top. Like, do we see signs of this happening?
1: I mean, this was, this is the old party question then, right? This is the consciousness question. This is the million dollar question here that people have been asking themselves what's, what form of organization, socialist or communist or anarchist, uh, is adequate to the task of this. I mean, in the 20th century, obviously people would gravitate towards um, those representatives of the Soviet bloc. Uh, today, China doesn't really have a, a, an outward-facing uh, political program in order for people to, um, to latch onto or, or take for inspiration. Uh, they might at some point in time, but ultimately, what is it that builds that sort of program? Uh, I mean, can it happen spontaneously? Can it happen from the ground up? I don't know. We don't know that. Andy, do you have any, any idea on that? I mean, do you see like, things like um, what happened in Kazakhstan, things like happening in, um, in Sudan? Do you, do you see them, potentially, these struggles reaching towards something that could, you know, reach beyond itself?
2: Yeah, the delegitimization of the state project of trying to put some other party in power of the bourgeois nation-state. And so I think, you know, basically everyone has to go through the process of realizing that putting in, like, Pedro Castillo, a leftist, uh, you know, who, you know, a few years ago claimed to be a Maoist or whatever... Mm -hmm. Uh, is not going to mean that you're going to have a socialist country where the workers and uh, and, and rural people are taken care of. Um, it's going to mean you have leftist management of a capitalist system that is intertwined with the global capitalist system. Which is in that, crisis. And that workers and rural people everywhere are fighting and that the, their strugg, the struggles uh, are literally about the same thing, about the price of living, specifically food and gas prices, if a consciousness can come that that is what the struggle is and not about the restoration or um, progressing towards a uh, socialist or a populist regime, then there becomes a, a conflict with the state, primarily with the, the military initially. Um, so that's where we're headed. We're headed towards these uprisings, which have the really do have the power to change the uh, political situation very quickly. More than any election, confronting the state and the military in some way, I think through that maybe you'll get some kind of new political subjectivity internationally coordinated. This is all very speculative, of course, but I don't really see any other course of action. Like, I don't think anything specifically ideological is going to create that kind of international coordination. Like, no, it's not like there's uh, we're lacking the ideas of Leninism or. Uh, a social democratic international those ideas exist and people reject them because they have not worked
0: mm. well i think tbd on a lot of these questions though like uh i too am skeptical of the idea that say um china or other countries that are nominally socialist could be a foothold for socialism until the rest of the world kind of catches up um, but like who the fuck knows <laughs> like I really think it might only be possible to know um the role that they will have played um, in retrospect from the vantage point of having having won whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like to us
1: I mean I, I think this all the speculation is important because I think what it does is it it zeros us three here, and the listeners too, I suppose, on uh, what's, what's really important. And as I, th- I agree with Andy, and I agree with your question about overdetermination, uh, that it seems as though um, electing the right person uh, doesn't seem to do it much anymore, certainly in the global South, it seems. And there doesn't seem to be much appetite for left populism in the, in the capitalist core these days. So you're not going to win that, I guess, by democracy. So what's left? What are the sort of things that we in the core who can sit here comfortably and talk about and think about these things uh, should be looking at and looking for? I mean, I think it's it's ultimately, you know, understanding that any changes come if they're not going to come from the ballot if not necessarily the bullet, then they're certainly going to come from the struggle, you know, that, um, you know, we, we should be looking to these things happening out in the periphery, these shocks and these crises and these fight backs, and starting to try to think about our role in it. Because if indeed this crisis does continue, and if eventually it does reach the core, as prices are rising here in the United States, 8.5% last month, for example, right, how do what do we imagine our place being in, in all of this? You know, are we going to, when it happens in Detroit or Denver or Birmingham, Alabama, or wherever it is that people are listening to this from, you know, are we going to see this as simply like a petty bourgeois, um, the consumerist struggle about, you know, things that aren't really uh, important to or interesting to socialists? Or are we going to see... The things that happen in the United States as part and parcel of a sort of larger global process, one that, you know, isn't simply about prices. It's ultimately about a serious breakdown in the um, in the the machine of the global economy, this delegitimization of all the states and really the bankruptcy of the future, such as all of us see it right now, uh, having run out of all those other options. Where do we see ourselves in all that? Where do we imagine that we could actually affect change with all that? Where might people with a certain understanding of history and how the world works, where might we insert ourselves into that and try to make a difference when the time comes Or what can we do in the meantime? I think those are really super important questions. You don't need to predict the future uh, to see that uh, there's huge changes coming down the pipe and, of course, we should be part of them.
0: Find out the answers to all of these questions in the bonus. <laughs> when
2: actually, we'll
0: tell you the answer <laughs> and exactly what you have to do to get communism in our lifetimes.
2: The bonus this week will actually not tell you any of that. Uh, the bonus this week is about the show Severance. Hey, Jake and I did a Poddam America crossover episode. About the Apple Plus show Severance, which you know is about the workplace. It's about oh, a, sure. a manner
1: of worker struggle, although a very white-collar worker struggle. I'm on episode four, so don't spoil anything now. All I'll right. wait for the bonus. Uh,
2: yeah, so go to patreon.com slash theantifada. Please support the show. It means a lot to us if you can support the show. And you can hear the Severance bonus. You can hear uh, History is a Weapon in full from two weeks ago. You can hear jamie and leslie's the third's vampire castle you can talk to us and critique the show and comment on the show and discuss it in our discord community all this and more
0: (laughs) uh vampire castle was a fun one i'm just remembering (laughs) this now uh everything is such a blur like since my weird awful vacation but um i recorded this right before i left um And wait, let me see if I can remember what we talked about. I remember it was fun. Yeah, we did. Oh, yeah. Fright Night, which is a very kind of silly, but also like scary and fucked up vampire movie from the 80s um, starring a teenage boy. And he's sort of in this like real, real battle, battle of wills with this uh, thousand year old vampire who moves in next door, who's just like a yuppie dick because it's the 80s. Name is Jerry and he's very petty vampire jerry um and then uh dracula dead and loving it which is a fun mel brooks movie starring leslie nielsen so um definitely check that out also check out my other show um everybody loves communism uh patreon.com slash everybody loves communism fans.fm slash everybody loves communism we're trying to actually think of a less clunky name for it so uh Yeah, let me know if you have any ideas. But we're almost done with um, State and Revolution. So if that is something you're interested in reading, um, of course, by Comrade Lennon, uh, check it out.
1: And lastly, I think before Andy does the final, final plug, or second, penultimately, check out uh, our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash theantifada, where we stream Paul and I, and we joke and laugh and have good times. And you can ask a worker there if you're interested.
0: Yeah, Interaction. What, what days do you usually stream? synergy.
1: Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Go ahead to okay. Twitch and follow us, and you'll get a notification when we go live. Great. Give Hassan a break.
2: Mm-hmm. You know he'll be there. You right?
1: know what he's going to yeah. say. You know yeah. what, what him and Grimes are up to these <laughs> days.
2: Alright, yeah. And lastly, big announcement. I am going on tour to promote I Want to Believe the Green Book, the Read the Green Book tour. Uh coming this May. I'll be in new orleans tucson los angeles hopefully portland or the bay area still working on that after that olympia seattle minneapolis and chicago so if you live in one of those cities please follow me at space pro on twitter or you know i'll announce it for sure on our feed at some point those specific dates but yeah see you in may
1: you can show up to Andy's book release, and you can take him to the best place to dumpster dive in your local town. Oh, What about the workers of them? Should I get it from the ones in the
3: office to the one with the bucket? Them make the profit. They should get some of it. Put some of the profit in a DAPA pocket. When them 65, you get them a watch or a locket. Stop it. Got it, people not take it. Give the workers more are your profit. Cause you got it. Yes, you got it. you got it, yes you got it, all the workers, I make the profit go up so fast, and all the workers, I come my work here o'clock clock shop, and all the workers, I come and work without breakfast, and all the workers, I do all the agro company, made a profit, They never make a loss, and the younger one to get a rise was the boss, then they get no rise to the rest of the staff, the boss in my laughing, by another resource, give the workers more of your profit, cause you got it, yes you got it. And give them hell, stand up for your rights and yell if all is not right. Strike and give them a fight. God then can't treat the workers just so they like more pay away they work.